Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni, a company known for bringing portable pizza ovens to backyards all over the world. Used to be that to get an authentic Neapolitan-style pie, you either had to wait in line at a wood-fire pizzeria or get on a plane to Naples. But Uni changed all that. Founded in 2012, the company launched the world's first portable pellet pizza oven that can heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, the searing temperature needed to get a bubbly, thin-crust Neapolitan pizza. Over the years, Uni pizza ovens have continued to define the category with carbon steel shell for insulation, optimized airflow engineering for precise temperature control, and new models with different fuel options, wood, charcoal, and gas, to suit the needs of every outdoor cook. The latest model, the super versatile Unikaru 16 multi-fuel oven, makes it so that you can choose between three fuels, fire to fire. So on days when you have time to chill out with a glass of wine in the wood smoke as your log heats up, you can. And for those nights when you're in a rush, all you have to do is hook up the gas, and at the time it takes to shape your dough and chop some topping, your uni oven will be ready to go. Learn more at uni.com. That's O-O-N-I.com. Welcome to the Modernist Pizza Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. This is episode seven, Burning Down the House, the three piece of heat, conduction, convection, and radiation. Along with Nathan Mirvold, founder of Modernist Cuisine, and its head chef, Francisco Magoya, who together co-authored Modernist Pizza, a 1,700-page book about the art, history, and science of pizza. We'll chew over the world's most popular food with the people who have been part of its story past are shaping its yet-to-be-told future. We survey the multitude of pizza-making ovens around the world, why wood is the romantic choice for fuel source, how one pizzeria had to burn to the ground to reinvent themselves, what the first steps of building your own oven are, 
and how to take that portable pizza oven from the backyard to realizing your own brick and mortar. Not to mention how pizza trucks are driving the pizza oven revolution. Oh, and pans. Because who doesn't love a pan pizza? First, Nathan opens us to the world of thermodynamics through the three ways we can control heat. Conduction, convection, and radiation. We all know the story of Isaac Newton hit on the head by an apple, which is largely apocryphal, inspiring him to figure out gravity. We don't know the story of Ludwig Boltzmann and Ehrenfest and Carnot and others that figured out the laws of thermodynamics, but it was at least equally important to the world. So the laws of thermodynamics, we don't need to go into the physics part of it, but heat flows from hot to cold. Each kind of substance has something called a heat capacity. And the amount of heat that thing holds depends on its heat capacity times the, its temperature, basically. Now, air has very pathetic heat capacity, which is why we can reach our hand into an oven, even if it's 400 degrees in the oven, and it doesn't burn your hand. If you reach your hand over the spout of a whistling teapot or even a pot of boiling pasta, way lower temperature, you'll burn. So you touch a piece of hot metal and you'll feel it right away. That's called conduction. We know just empirically in day-to-day -day life, touching a piece of styrofoam is not the same as touching a piece of metal in terms of how much heat we feel and how long it takes us for things to equilibrate. That's why we insulate with styrofoam, not with metal. The other big way, there's two other ways that heat transfers. One is called convection. That's when you have a moving fluid or a gas. If you put your hand above a hot candle, you'll discover it gets hot because the candle is heating the air, making it rise. That motion is called convection, and that helps heat your hand up much faster than if you had to wait for the heat to get there by conduction. If you put your hand right beside the um, flame, but not above it, you can get quite close before it gets hot. And But then the heat you feel will be from the light that's generated, and that's called radiation. All hot things emit light. The frequency at which they emit light depends on their temperature. And your barbecue grill or or, or something heated by a torch, it'll go from being dull colored to a very dull red to bright cherry red, and then ultimately goes white. If you really heat it long enough, it would become blue. Infrared light is the invisible light that something will emit when it's hot, but not hot enough that you can see it glow in the red that's visible to us. So it's a frequency of red light that's above uh, in wavelength. It's longer than what our eyes can see. When we cook with a broiler, that is all we're cooking with is light. A physics nerdy thing is the amount of energy that comes out of something that's hot as light 
goes as the fourth power of the temperature. So that means if I double the temperature, I don't get twice as much light out. I get 16 times as much light out. So the hotter something gets, the more important this light becomes. And pizzas are typically baked in the range where light is the primary way that heat is transferring to your pizza. The shape of an oven and fuel source also affect the way a pizza is baked. We've long considered a domed wood fire oven to be the most distinguished way of accomplishing preeminent pizza, but this isn't necessarily the most efficient mold. If it's sitting on the floor of an oven or on a pizza stone or pizza stealer or something else, so you get some conduction and you get radiation, the air temperature in a pizza oven does not matter. So what should matter is how the oven is shaped so that you get a very even distribution of heat. If you wanted to have a very even distribution of heat, what you need to do is have the heating elements be in a very flat plane completely parallel to the floor of the oven. And that's what you see in deck style pizza ovens. A traditional pizza oven, whether it's fired by gas or by wood, has a masonry dome shape inside. And that's an old, old, old design. It has some benefits for some things, but it's actually very poorly suited to cooking pizzas. In a wood burning oven, almost all of the infrared heat that goes into cooking the pizza comes directly from the wood. The wood itself will, when it's in the glowing, you know, ember phase, just like if you blow on it and it gets red, but then it sort of darkens down a little bit, that's the stage where it's emitting the most heat. And it can easily be 14 or 1500 degrees. If you have a gas-fired oven, you'll have a big gas flame that's in there, but a flame can be bright, like a candle flame can be bright. So you might think, oh, so it's putting out lots of infrared? And the answer is, no, actually, it isn't. I finally found a set of forestry researchers in Europe that are very concerned with how forest fires propagate. And so they wanted to know how important was radiation from the flame versus the embers, exactly the problem I wanted to solve. And it turns out a flame is what a physicist would call optically thin, meaning it doesn't radiate worse shit. So a gas-fired pizza oven only cooks your pizza because that big gas flame is like a blowtorch blowing on the ceiling of the oven. And it then makes a temperature distribution around the ceiling of the oven. And from that, you can calculate how much infrared energy gets down to the pizza. Only you can prevent pizza fires. Francisco discusses the irreversible nature of pizza once it's in the oven. What's done is done, and there's no going back. You know, cooking is simply accelerating molecules through heat. Everything is made up of molecules. Every food is made up of molecules. Uh, these molecules are in constant movement. But what occurs during that acceleration of molecules, you know, when you apply heat, is that it can produce either a permanent or impermanent changes. The higher the temperature, the, f the higher the speed at which molecules move, the more permanent or dramatic the change is going to be. 
But uh, during the cooking of certain foods, like, you know, proteins and starches, the molecules will stick to each other. This sticking is irreversible, like even once the food has cooled down. But when we talk about starch specifically, like the crust in a pizza, when these starches are heated, they're going to degrade. They're going to leak amylose, then they're going to stick together to make a gel at between 131, 149 degrees Fahrenheit. This gel starch holds the bubbles together and then forms a crust. So everything is mostly happening at a molecular level. In baking, meaning like in baking a pizza or bread or what have you, the most common movement of energy is through heat. And the best way to think of it from a pizzaiolo perspective is to think of heat as a form of internal energy, one that always flows from a substance at a higher temperature to another at a lower temperature. But essentially what we're doing is we're transferring heat from the inside of the oven to the pizza to try to equalize everything. And that's what most of pizza making is, creating an equilibrium, be it chemical or emotional. Richard Miskoff is a department chair in baking at Johnson & Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island, as well as author of From the Woodfire Oven. He's pragmatic about his approach to woodfire ovens, but he also loves the romanticism they emit. An example is a regional style of pizza that we have here in Rhode Island called pizza strips, which is uh, a pretty thin crust. It is in a pan. It's made in half or full-size sheet pans. It's, it's often made in bakeries, sometimes called bakery pizza. It has just a single topping, which is a thick tomato sauce. And that is baked at a lower temperature, often in just blodget pizza ovens in Italian bakeries around the state. And that does perfectly fine in a wood-fired oven. It needs a lower temperature environment compared to wood-fired pizzas that would be done in a very hot oven for 60, 90, 120 seconds. If you think about thermal mass as a battery, it's the battery of the oven. It's what holds the energy. Just because you have a fire in a wood-fired oven and it's been going for an hour or two doesn't necessarily mean it's hot enough. You put your hand in there, sure, it's hot. I see on social media groups, uh, new wood-fired oven owners lamenting that their, you know, their bottoms aren't getting baked quickly enough. And that could be two reasons. One, oven's not thoroughly charged. The hearth is not fully charged and or too many toppings staying damp on the bottom. Looking at different cultures and how they make hot fires with less wood, being cognizant of nurturing combustion so that it is a buildup. So you don't just start with a big pile of wood and have it be kind of smoldery for a while, start with a small hot fire, start with a top-down burn, and then add wood. And it's kind of, it's the hidden process, combustion and, and fire. In the same way that uh, fermentation is a hidden process in making dough, right? It's going on. And if you give it the things it needs at the pace it needs, it will flourish. But you could give it one of the things it needs in excess, too much wood all of a sudden, and too much water or too much salt, and then you have a disaster. So it's, I think that's a big part in, in learning how to think about making good fires in wood-fired ovens is to really understand combustion. It's all about getting that oven up to temp and keeping it hot enough to keep pumping out pie after pie. But when it comes to firewood, it's the shape and size that matters. So the most important thing is that it is cured wood, that it's, it's not green, that it's been seasoned, that it's been stored well, and that it's the proper size, which is about 
three inches, you know, the size of your wrist. And that again goes back to aiding combustion. There's more surface area. It combusts more quickly. It gives off more heat, which then makes it hotter. I like what's around me. And I've lived in different regions of the world and I've lived in different regions of the United States. And I like to think about what wood is around us and how we can use that or how we can use wood that is from a tree that has to be cut down. I prefer hardwoods um, compared to softwoods, right? If I had a choice of a cord of split oak and a cord of split pine, I would choose the oak. You know, it's really nice to have something that's aromatic like cedar. When I did live in North Carolina, a lot of cedars down there, they have a shallow root system. So a lot of them come down in hurricanes. Different times, there might be a huge amount of cedar that is easy to split. It doesn't have a ton of BTUs, but it's just a very charismatic wood. And even if you're not burning it, even if you just have a oven that's hot or warm and you're not actually cooking it, just a piece of cedar in that will perfume the area around your oven house. And I'm always really grateful to have some of that around just for that purpose. Also down there, pecan wood or pecan wood, depending on where you're from, burns up super clean. It's like it just burns down to ash. Uh, we don't have that here in Rhode Island. American essayist and friend of Mark Twain, Charles Dudley Warner, once wrote, to poke a wood fire is more solid enjoyment than almost anything else in the world. Having built a wood fire oven my own, I can concur with that catchphrase. But you know what? I've never considered a specific type of wood as an essential ingredient for pizza making before. But for Bill Stoeckler and his family, that's been their business. You know, we use predominantly ash because ash burns very cleanly. Hard maple You'll have like charcoal, it doesn't burn down as quick, and certain even even oak as clean as ash does. If you want to light a dry piece of oak, you're going to have a harder time getting it started than you would if you have the same dryness, the same moisture in an ash piece of ash or maple or birch. Some of the dense woods, hickory and oak, especially all kinds of oak, they'll last longer on a fire. But they're not the best thing for a, a pizza oven. Catskill's Finest Firewoods was founded in 1952 when Bill Sr. and his buddy started hauling logs in Ellenville, New York, to a company that made broom handles. With a bulldozer and a long truck, they began repurposing wood as a fuel source for the home, then hearth. A lot of loggers butchered the land, never thought a second about erosion after they got out of there. They left all the big pieces of the trees in there, less than a, a foot in diameter. You know, the mills wouldn't take them, so... They would leave them. Well, my father didn't operate that way. He he brought all that stuff home. You know, I mean, it's just going to lay there. The mills didn't need it, so he got brought it all all home on different trucks and threw it in the yard. And when he had time on on the weekends or the rainy days, or you know, they had guys sawing it and splitting it. Back then, it was splitting by hand. A couple decades ago, there was an increase in iridescent green ash borer beetles and new regulations were put into place to save forests from the decimation they caused. Like it states in their name, they bore under the bark and kill many trees, spreading like wildfire. So all firewood had to go through a kiln drying process. Kilns have computers that print off every time we run a load through, which takes about a day to uh, cure the wood down to about uh, 10, 12 percent 
moisture level. And uh, we had to keep that with us when we delivered the wood. New York City was one of the first ones. They wouldn't allow anybody in without the permit. We were used to uh, splitting everything up and stacking it in these big, big sheds and air dried. They're, you know, 18 inches between the rows and 20 feet high the rows. And uh, over a six-month period of time, the wood was nice and dry, you know. Now, it took some labor to stack it and then to reload the truck when you go to, you know, sell it ultimately at harvest time. But the kiln speeds it up. I mean, you don't have to dry anything. You can, you can cut a green tree today, and the green tree would take about a day and a half. You can split it up, put it in the kiln a day and a half later. You can start it with a, you know, piece of paper and a match. Like a match to a flame. Catskill Finest Firewood got into a pizza game because of a stack of wood sitting outside a matzo factory in Brooklyn. Anthony Falco, who used to man the pizza oven at Roberta's in Bushwick, walked by, looked at the label, and called Bill up. They are still Bill's biggest wood fire pizza client. How do you see wood fire changing the landscape of how we cook? On both ends, is all spectrums, the low end, high end, you know, really nice restaurants using that to cook their steaks on, you know, with the, with the, the smoke, the flavor of it. And uh, also I say on the other, the flip side is uh, our pizza ovens. I mean, that's not a low end because there's a difference between pizza and a difference between Roberta's pizzas, right? You just throw together pizza with some kind of sauce or bread, or, you know, dough with sauce and, and fire it up with wood. It's going to taste much better than it out of a regular oven. So I don't, you know, it's, I don't know the percentage of it. I'm going to say it's probably really small. It's probably 5% of it. If it's that much of the places that sell pizza are fired by wood in the country. There's probably more of them in New York City, you know, certain metropolitan areas. I mean, do we have enough wood to support more pizzerias using wood? There are more trees in the United States. Believe it or not, there's more trees now than when they founded the country. They've got millions of acres of managed forests in the country. And those you go in about every 10 years and you, and you thin it out. So the real big, big, big stuff, the old growth trees, there's not a lot of that in, around. But it takes a long time for an oak tree to get 20 inches in diameter. Then why does it seem like wood-fire pizza places are everywhere? There used to be one in Memphis, Tennessee called Hog and Hominy. By used to be, I mean it opened in 2013. But months before the pandemic shut down restaurants, it burned to the ground. Over a thousand days later, it's now made its resurrection. Andy Tyser and Michael Hudman of Andrew Michael Italian Kitchen opened up their pizzeria as an extension of their brand, Italian cuisine with southern flavors. That must be why they grew up eating biscuit pizzas. Hudman and Tyser recollect. Usually a little canned biscuits, bisquick, and a little tomato sauce, cheese, and a couple slices of pepperoni. It was a little grandma to mom treat, I guess. We kind of always had the idea of wanting to do like your wood-burning brick oven neighborhood kind of eatery after Andrew Michael had gotten up and running. Honestly, the whole concept kind of came as like we wanted to have a place to go after we got off work. The original Hog and Hominy was a, a very loud, like our goal is to make it completely opposite of Andrew Michael. So very casual, loud, Real fun. Well, it sounds like you wanted to make a pizza joint, that place that you went after school and hung out with your friends. Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, a place where you could come two or three times a week was a big one 
focusing on the ingredients, focusing on Southern flavor. I mean, you know, Hog and Hominy Pizzeria has, you know, got really well known for its collard greens. Every, I remember our parents, we put like, we put it on the menu like, what are you putting collard greens on the menu for at a pizza joint? And then they were, dip, then they were dipping their, their pizza crust in a pot liquor. <laughs> <laughs> if you couldn't have guessed, those collards made it onto a pie. The pot liquor is served with collards, Calabrian chili, garlic, mozzarella, and mushroom conserva. While there are a lot of nods to the South, the red eye is not reminiscent of the gravy of the same name. Instead, it's topped with pork belly, sugo, fontina, celery leaf, and egg. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the red eye was a hangover cure. You know, so we took a, the, the base of that sauce, you know, and most of our pizza sauces are raw, kind of like a, a whipped, like mayonnaise cheese base. But this one was, it was a nod to Calabria. So the base of the pizza was a, was a, actually like a Sunday ragu that we learned when we were living in Calabria. And so that was the base. And then, you know, for that was like, we wanted a little bit of spice. So we had a roast pork belly. We finished it off with celery leaf, something that you would find. Our inspiration was a Bloody Mary. Yeah, I mean, um, just like, you know, you sad card this pizza with a beer and it's basically the red eye drink. Not not to jump to uh, a day that you probably want to forget, but at the same time, it is a big marker of how Hog and Hominy might change. Um, January 9th, 2019, what happened? Man, um, I was at home with the flu. Mikey called like, I don't know, two o'clock in the morning, like 30 times. He told me that, you know, Hog was torched and then you know i was sitting there and uh you know immediately it's like i i, I remember having 104 fever that night like it was bad and like as soon as he told me like the fever completely went away like it just disappeared and you know mikey came, went up to the restaurant i met him there shortly after it was just a, a random dumpster fire still don't know what caused it it was awful i remember <laughs> so i got a phone call and immediately i don't i was like in bed and for some reason i had my phone on my chest and i remember waking up and uh the chef at that time said he would happen to be at the bar down the street and he said hog and hominy is on fire i jumped out i mean i ran out the front door i don't even know if i had shoes on or short i don't know what it was and like front doors open i pulled up to brookhaven which is literally two and a half minutes from the house to seeing the what they call the point and overturn, the big truck that's like at a, a right angle and just dumps an insane amount of water on it, on the building. And I just walked up to that and it was like, I don't know. I was like 1000% in shock. I remember my parents were up there, Andy's folks were up there and it just, you know, it really felt like a nightmare. And it, it really, I honestly, like we've talked about it. We've talked about it a lot. And I've never really, I've really never let it sink in honestly until this moment. And it was, it's just strange kind of replan that incident. You, Andy and I are always really big believers and everything happens for a reason. And, and you know, I never, I, it's like, I don't know if we, I don't know if we ever grieved <laughs> for it or not, or properly grieved. Well, everything happens so quick. You know, it's like that happened in January and then, you know, we're still trying to figure out what, what the heck we're going to do. And then in March comes along and the, and the pandemic hit, you know, and it's been just a, Dumpster fire since then. Have you had enough space in between that happening and what you're doing now to see the parallels and almost poetic nature of all this fire? Oh yeah, it is. Uh, it you know, it's a sense of cleansing. I think you know, you know, I think when we hit the ground running. We just kind of got into su- su- survival mode, and 
we try to like spread the staff out amongst all the restaurants and some of them we've kept over the mm-hmm. time and obviously like COVID to, to every other, everybody, every friend we have and every person we don't have who's in our industry has lost really great people who will never return. It was nuts. After the initial everything shut down and like you started to kind of figure out what the new normal was going to be and every week it was something different and there was new directives and there were so many distractions. Like when Michael says, we never really stopped to think about it. Like, I, I mean, he's really right. Like until you ask that question, I, I haven't even thought about that and, day. And we've or, been asked it a bunch of times. I, I, don't, know, I don't know. Yeah, it's weird. Um, it's just <laughs> like, you know, you were trying to, like he said, survival mode, come up with any, any kind of thing you could to get food to go sold or people, you know, keeping their jobs. And, you know, we felt the big responsibility for that as well. And it's just been one distraction after another. And now to be sitting in the, like we're sitting in the new hall right now. And it's like a completely different footprint than the original. Um, it's kind of surreal. It's funny. I kept on thinking like, this is a great story because of what happened. Obviously it's not a great thing that I've gone through. And the only thing that could have been more poetic is if you were in Phoenix it's funny you say that. It's like uh, the only piece of art that we put inside uh, the new hog is a very, very big piece of artwork of a phoenix rising from the ashes. <laughs> uh, made, made out of bottle caps from an artist out of Charleston, South Carolina. In a small town in the Green Mountain State lives Dr. Daniel Wing, a retired physician. He started baking bread in college, furthering his bread education through medical school. But it wasn't until reading an article about an Australian oven builder named Alan Scott that he sought to give wood fire a whirl, finding his calling in a communal wood fire oven in a neighboring town. The same bread that I'd been making for a long time came out completely differently. And we were all, all the people who were there were just amazed, blown away by this bread. Even though the oven was too hot, the crust was almost burned, the crumb was not completely baked, but the flavor was there that I had never gotten before. So it was in my mind that I wanted to have a masonry oven and experiment with it. Well, very shortly thereafter, our granddaughter was born in Berkeley, California, and we were going out there the week that she was born, March of 1995. And just as we got there, I got a hard cold, or maybe it was the flu, and I couldn't go in the house with the baby. We were not so much worried about the baby, but I didn't want the mommy. (laughs) I didn't want my stepdaughter to get sick when she was trying to deal with this new baby. So I, I actually stayed outside the house and interacted with them through the French door. So I had time on my hands, and we had a rental car. I had written Alan Scott because Ed Bear talked about that you could get plans from him. But Alan, at that time, not only had some plans, which were very rudimentary and almost impossible to follow, but he had some plans, but he also gave people advice when they called up. He didn't charge them for it. And locally, he was building ovens for people. So when I called up, and said I was interested in an oven. At one point, he said, well, where do you live? I said, Vermont. And he said, oh, well, then you just want the plans. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, people from all over want me to come and build ovens, but from Vermont, they want to build it themselves. I went out there, and we baked together. We had lunch together, etc. 
I knew enough at the end of that to come home and make myself an oven. With many back and forths, Wing and Scott became collaborators, writing an avant-garde ode to wood fire ovens that changed the way we've looked at wood fire baking ever since. When I was talking to Alan, at some point, he told me that he wanted to write a book about ovens and bread. And he also showed me that he had lots of literature that he had accumulated from one place or, or another about traditional ovens and various kinds of bread and stuff. So a year later, I went back and I called him up and I went out there and I asked him how he was doing with the book. And it was clear to me that he was never going to be able to do it. He was just fundamentally disorganized. He had strong opinions and he was kind of a generous curmudgeon in a way. It was just hard for me to imagine that he was going to come up with a book. Luckily, Wing was practicing locum's medicine. In other words, he was a traveling doctor that filled in temporarily in places of need. This gave him the flexibility to pursue bread builders and, in a sense, prescribe a new way of cooking pizza in this country. He built some dedicated pizza ovens for people in San Francisco and another one on a wine ranch in Napa Valley. But he built them pretty much the same way he built his regular ovens, which means that they were very thick and massive and required wood to get them up to a temperature that would make pizza. The other thing is that a lot of those early ovens failed because of the specific building technique that he was using. Because pizza, you know, you want to have 800, 900 degrees Fahrenheit, and that means a lot of expansion and contraction. And these ovens were really not that fundamentally sound mechanically for that degree of heat and movement. And the other thing is that Alan was using a mortar that he made himself out of a mixture of Portland cement and fire clay and so forth. It was not a true refractory mortar. I would say that those ovens were not ideal for pizza. I think Alan and other people at the time were not following kind of a true Neapolitan plan for pizza you know, of the, that very high degree of, of heat. And instead, they were maybe making bread and then refiring to have a pizza party that night, or maybe directly after firing, before the oven had cooled down to make bread, they would make some pizza. But it wasn't a big thing at that time. If he hadn't done what he did, the thing wouldn't have opened up for other people to go in more of a direction of making pizza and wood-fired ovens. Who knew that Vermont was a hotbed for wood-fire pizza in the U.S.? American flatbread opened up in Vermont in the 1980s, using the ingenuity of Quebecois bread ovens as their impetus. In the 1990s, Jay Gold, the eventual owner of Flatbread Company, visited one of George Schenck's establishments, befriended him, and began a chain of similar pizza places throughout the country. Flatbread Company's current president, Jason Lyon, and director, Clay Westbrook, keep the flame alive by putting their ovens front and center. We have individuals that actually have been building these ovens for us from the start of our concept. They actually specialize in the oven building process 
And when we are designing our um, new hearths, um, we do take, of course, the oven uh, is the primary actually uh, first concern. Uh, where is it going to be located within inside the restaurant? Uh, we believe uh, the oven is actually our show. We don't have TVs um, and digital entertainment with inside our walls. So therefore we have a open kitchen concept and um, we want our ovens to be the show of the evening uh, with every seat in the house having a, a view uh, of the of the oven and the show that's going on around it while we're making their pizza. One of the things that's really unique and interesting about the Quebec wood-fired ovens is they were made in sort of a rectangle and they, they were called either beaverback ovens. So they have a curved slope um, to them and they typically had the door on the shorter side of the rectangle and they would then load it from that side which was how they you know they added their their breads and their meats and so forth so you know they're different than other ovens which are made out of brick you know nowadays a lot of people have built many ovens out of brick and mortar and you know it's a more technical oven i would say you're using you know the fire brick you can buy today it's more of a technical material that's been manufactured there's a lot of technical mortars you can use that probably hold up better in some ways However, this old world mortar that we've used um, for years and years has held up quite a long time. You know, there's there's ovens that have been surveyed in Quebec that have stood for 100 years. So as long as they're not damaged with water or some kind of severe extreme, they can stand for quite a long time. Once built, it takes six to eight weeks to get a new oven ready for service, slowly setting ascending small fires to cure it properly so it doesn't crack. The day of the first burn, Flatbread Company celebrates what they call Clay Day where they let the community participate in finishing the process. But every time a new oven is born into the company, Westbrook looks to improve on the foundation they already have. The basics of George's design are um, pretty brilliant in an accidental sort of way. I think he, you know, he, well, go, let's go back to the Quebec wood-fired oven where it's on a rectangle, the door's on the long side. He decided to flip the door to the long side, um, which is the way our ovens are all oriented and then sink the firebox so that the deck is actually um, up higher than the base of the firebox basically so that there's a depression where the firebox is so i think that number one is that's unique i i haven't seen a lot of ovens in my um scanning through of all, wood part fire pizza ovens or restaurants that use them they're usually just a flat deck with the um fire on the side um, but the innovations that we've been working on in the last few years so the problem with the heat of the oven is you can't really use a lot of mortar. Um, you can't use any mortar really because it just disintegrates and you have trouble with the stones kind of moving around with the heat because the heat actually can move the stones. And what happens then is you have, is you have seams where they open up and they make it challenging for each baker because they can catch the bread on it or catch their peel or mess up the bread. Um, I can slow them down. So really trying to focus on keeping those seams tight and without any mortar or anything else. And so we've been working on a process to lock those stones in um, to the firebox. So that's one thing, just tightening up the hearths and not having the stones move around. Um, been just kind of compressing some of the designs of the firebox to have a tighter firebox, which actually I think makes the decks a little hotter on the close front line area. Um, and then actually opens up some space in the in the hearth because it makes the hearth deck a little larger. There's a point where the baker can't uh, re physically reach in and move the pies around. We've been experimenting with a, a larger oven, but try not to get too large. And so we, we call it a 10 bread oven. On a smaller scale, 
I couldn't not talk about wood fire ovens without mentioning Kiko Denzer, master of the mud oven. I read his book, Build Your Own Earth Oven, in preparation for building my own. He went a step further and built his own house. But aren't the two structures really the same anyway? Hearth and home? When I was one, we moved to Italy. And what my mom told me about pizza was that when they tested the wood-fired oven in Italy, they would just take a loaf and pat it out and toss it in. And if it baked in the right amount of time, then the oven was ready for for bread. And that was, uh, we used to call it schiaccio which, or pizza bianco, which is just flatbread with oil and salt, which is wonderful. Uh, I went to a little stone carving town called Pietra Santa on the West Coast, and I was carving marble and hanging out with all the other expat artists. Now, was pizza a part of your life then? I didn't eat a lot of pizza when I was in Italy as a uh, as a student when I was seventeen and up. <laughs> my my origins in pizza were in New York, in Greenwich Village, where my grandmother lived. And when I went to visit my grandma, we'd go down to the local pizza joint and and grab a slice. And then when we moved to Boston, there was a pizza joint down the street where, you know, the guys threw the pies in the air and made the work look just glorious. And, you know, we'd either grab a slice or take a whole pie home for for dinner. I love in your book that you say Alan Scott explains that concentration of steam is what makes flavorful crust, but the higher the dome, the more volume in the void, and the less concentrated the steam, being vapor. Steam will also rise to the top of the dome, away from the crust where you want it. What other conditions in the oven make pizza more or less delicious? I believe that there are some dedicated pizza ovens that have a lower dome because you really want that high heat. And, you know, you've seen pizzaiolos probably uh, lift up the, the pie when it's just about done and hold it closer to the dome of the oven to catch some of that more intense heat to either, you know, put some color onto the, onto the toppings or just finish cooking it. And so I, I, uh, I've been in some wood-fired restaurants and seen what I think are lower domes. I haven't had a chance to actually take measurements. But um, lower dome and lower door and possibly a chimney. If you're interested in building your own wood-fire oven, I suggest you read Miskoff, Wing, and Denzer's works. There are plenty other domes and decks in the world, too from Giovanni Acunto to Stefano Ferreira to fine oven builders throughout the world. Francisco thinks we're missing out on one special oven, though. Even Francesco Martucci of E. Massanielli has started a pizza chain in Italy with famed actress Sofia Loren, solely based on this oven. So this is something that stirs the pot because a lot of people will be like, well, that's not, I don't know, traditional, authentic, whatever. But it's an oven that works. It's a conveyor belt, basically. So think of a conveyor belt that guides a pizza through this cavity that it goes through that is blowing really hot air from the top and the bottom. You can decide how long it takes for a pizza to go in one end and out the other and what temperature. And some you can even adjust the top temperature and the bottom temperature. I'm not sure that's terribly necessary because they're both blowing into each other. But what is great about that is that you have a very consistent product. And... If I owned a pizzeria, I would be able to have less people on my payroll because one person can do the whole job. This means rolling out the pizza dough, saucing and cheesing it, goes in the impinger oven, 
it goes in, it comes out, it's going to be the same all the time. You don't have to worry about temperature dropping or the oven floor getting too cold uh, with each pizza that goes in. It's a consistent product every time. And when it comes out, it basically just hangs out. No frills, no worry oven. But where's the romance in that? We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni, a company known for bringing portable pizza ovens to backyards all over the world. For most people, one of the most frustrating things about making pizza at home is that you can have the best flours, tomato, and cheese at hand, and yet you still have to put up with the constraints of a conventional oven. Uni makes it possible to make a true, bubbly, chewy, Neapolitan-style pie at home. For nearly a decade, Uni's portable pizza ovens have been the gold standard for getting that perfectly blistered crust because they're able to heat up to 950 degrees Fahrenheit, doubling the capabilities of the usual home oven. Want that wood fire scent? Well, you can have it. Or the convenience of gas. Or use the same charcoal you use for your grill. Unikaru 16 multi-fuel oven gives you all three fuel options. And because it gets so hot, it's possible to fire out those pizzas in 60 seconds with minimal recharge time. Once your neighbors catch on, you'll be hosting pizza parties in your backyard every week. Learn more at uni.com backslash modernistpodcast. That's O-O-N-I dot com backslash modernistpodcast. Say you don't have the time, money, or space to build your own pizza oven. Well, with the saturation of portable pizza ovens on the market these days, many aspiring pizzaiolo now have access to making the kinds of pies at home they'd only dreamed of. Miriam Westkind of the Zaw Report started an Instagram thing 10 years ago where she reviewed pizzerias and highlighted certain people in the pizza industry. She grew up in Dayton, Ohio, eating Marion's pizza, then moved to New York City as a designer, which is how she first started working for Scott's Pizza Tours. Then, she spent time behind the ovens at Pauly G's in Greenpoint, Brooklyn. At one point, she decided, hey, I want to be my own person in this industry. How can I make pizza too? So, she got an oven of her own. The process of, of figuring out how to be expert in that, it's like we learn from different styles of pizza to create ours. So when I say Neapolitan-ish, I mean, it's wood-fired pizza. It follows some of the principles of what you'd call VPN, but not necessarily all of them. Pizza is an art form. It's a combination of taking all the things that you have learned and combining it into your craft. I know a lot leads up to the actual bake. What's the difference between working at a place like Polly G's or working with a, a large oven versus one of these portable ovens that you can use at your home? The portable ovens are much more forgiving. It's weird because I started out baking in Polly G's oven before I ever used a smaller oven. So when I went into an uni, when I started, I think Rockbox was the first one that I used. And then I graduated to uni and the uni Coda 16 was much larger. Like the real estate was just... It, you have so much to work with. So, you know, you're essentially doing what I would say is 12 inch pizzas. The average person using those ovens aren't going to go much larger. But when you launch in, you learn where in the oven to launch to, you learn how to rotate it. But it just enables you to be much more intimate with the baking process that you'll figure out your craft in a couple bakes. And it's just more forgiving. Whereas when you're launching into one of the larger ovens that like Polly G has, you know, it's a thousand degrees, you're firing up four pies at a time, you have to move so much faster, where I'm stretching topping, 
four pies at a time and putting them all in one after another, by the time that fourth pie goes in, I've already got to rotate that other pie. But you place those pies in the oven in very different areas, and that's how you're able to time it just right. Whereas with an uni, you're just doing one at a time. For me at my pop-ups, I operate two code of 16s. I stretch two pies at a time. I launch two pies at a time. Then I have to give it a little bit of time to recovery because again, the larger wood-fired ovens, they're going to have a much thicker um, hearth, whereas, you know, Uni's got a much thinner stone. So you just have to, you learn how to, what the recovery is going to be like for that in order to craft your pizza to look just like something that would come out of, you know, a larger wood-fired oven. And that's what we all need, recovery time, to reflect and figure out what we really want to do with our lives. For Westkind, pizza and her very own brick and mortar. I am probably going to have a, either a wood-fired oven or use something like a pizza master to do my Neapolitan-ish and Sicilian pies. But I'm also going to have the outdoor space because I plan to open a New York City uni school, so to speak, where people will be able to come in for a two-day workshop. They'll get all the basics one day and the second day. They will be able to work with the uni ovens directly with me to learn how to use those ovens as pro as possible. It's the oven. It's the thermometer gun. It's the peels. It's the different tools you need in the craft of making the pizza and baking it. Um, so it, it really is a package deal. And, and you know, I've always been a huge proponent of like, when people say, what should I get? I'm like, here's the whole list of things you should buy. It's not just the oven. It's an investment in everything you need to have that full experience. I intend to continue to use my uni ovens. Um, I'll probably increase my fleet from two to four, just because if I'm baking completely by myself, um, which happens at events, I can yield about 20 to 24 pies per hour with two ovens, which is a lot. I can then cater larger events where I'm pumping out, you know, 50 pies an hour as opposed to just the 20 to 22, which is a lot if you think about it, because like, like a place like Polly G's or these other wood-fired pizzerias, they're going to be open from like five to 11 and banging out anywhere from 150 to 250 pies over that whole span of time. And then you look at the girls doing the pop-up with all these ovens lined up and you're able to get that, that number of pies too, but you have to do it in such a short, in a shorter period of time. But yeah, I mean, it's, I, I say like one of the most versatile things about those ovens is like, I can, and I always have one in my car, which is funny. Like people are like, oh, the pizza girl, she carries a coat of 16 and two baking steels and a set of peels in her car at all times. True story. Westkind is some kind of wonderkind, aiming to be the eighth female-owned pizzeria in the industry. She's also five-time New York City Pizza Run champion. You ran a loop around Tompkins Square Park, you ate a slice of pizza, ran a loop, ate a slice of pizza, ran a loop, ate a slice of pizza, ran a loop, and you're done. In my case, I ate like four extra slices of pizza after I finished, and I didn't get sick at all. I didn't know that it, this existed in my skill set was to run a six-minute mile and to be able to eat a slice of pizza in under 20 seconds. My parents had no idea I was born with those genetics. But to be a female in this industry, you'll see pizzerias that are starting to hire more women, but it's more like, oh, we should have a woman working here so we look equal. And it's not that they're going, it's like, it's just always been men. And I feel women make pizza differently, but to be like, when I was at Polly G's and I was making pizza, it was the greatest feeling in the world to stretch out that dough, to top that pie and to bake it, and then to watch the people in front of me eat it and think, I did that. And for them to look and see like, wow, it's a woman baking it because we're just so used to it being baked by, I mean, like really, oh, Italian men. 
But no, I mean, women are really starting to give, you know, men a run for their money. The more visible women become in the industry, the more you'll see girls that are inspired to do that for a living, that it's not just like the heavy lifting job that a guy has to do. And the, you know, traditionally you have women at the front of the house, you don't have them at the oven, but like, you know, definitely the times are changing. So for me, I, I love getting messages from other women on Instagram that are inspired to bake pizza because they didn't know that they could. I mean, if you asked me when I was, when I was like six years old, what did I think I was going to be? A meteorologist. What did my parents encourage me to do? Become a designer because I was good at drawing and bad at math. I never thought, never in a million years, I'd become a pizza maker or what you call a pizzaiola. I am looking at a picture of your mother. Uh, The quote that you have next to that um, is, every pizza I bake is like a beat of my mother's heart. She's always with me, each and every pie. It's an honor to help others and inspire others in my mother's memory. And I think that, you know, she grew up in a generation where she had a lot of jobs, but she helped raise us. Um, And then she went back and pursued her career after the fact. But she was always doing good for others and helping them. And my father will say, I'm a spinning image of my mother, not just in my looks, but in my generosity and and desire to help others. So, you know, one of the things with my pizza is that it was free for anyone who lost their job, anyone who's having a tough time in life, just being sad, or anybody that's helping as like a first responder, the pizza was completely free and it's going to continue to be. But I think the silver lining in all of that is when I started giving away the free pizza, it inspired pizza makers around the globe to give out free pizza to help other people out because they saw how much a pizza could bring happiness to somebody who's having a tough time. And it's also my process, my journey has also inspired and shown other women that they can also bake pizza. So I got an email the other day, like uh, a new female pizza baker started at Polly G's and Mary, Mrs. G is like, told her to reach out to me. And I was, she's like, I just left a career behind to become a pizza baker. And I was like, that is amazing. I am like, I'd be honored to fire some pies. I'm like, come use the uni with me sometime. But, you know, it's to be able to inspire other women and show them that they can pursue a career in, in something that has been male dominated for so long, it's kind of priceless. 5,000 pies and counting, which all started baking in a 300 square foot apartment in Brooklyn. Another way of upping your homemade pizza game is getting yourself a piece of iron alloy. You may have heard of pizza stones, but have you heard of the baking steel? Once it gets hot, it stays there. Andres Lagston grew up in Massachusetts in a red sauce household. When he turned away from cooking as a career and then ended up back at his family steel business, this somehow boomeranged his life right back to the oven. My background was in food in my 20s, in restaurants and culinary arts. I got a little burned out from the restaurant world and shifted. And uh, my dad is an entrepreneur. He has his own business that um, manufactures products that are made out of steel and rubber. I grew up in that industry and never thought I'd be back into it. But there (laughs) I was in my early 30s working with my dad again, but this time in a different capacity, trying to help grow his business. And we worked predominantly with raw steel and fabricated products. 
Because I remember when you had a Kickstarter campaign. I can't mm-hmm. remember what year that was. When was that? 2011. And it was a very modest goal that you started with. Yeah. Um, what were you trying to raise? Uh, capital or just interest? Interest. In fact, my modest goal was literally like $3,000 because I knew on Kickstarter, and this is back in 2011, 2012, before it really exploded. Um, once you hit your goal, you're going to be on Kickstarter forever. So I didn't really want to take a huge risk there. But my stretch goal at that time was about six or seven grand. And you ended up with closer to 40, correct? We ended up, exactly. We ended up close to 40 grand, which that translated into about 500 pre-sales of baking steels. I had a background in pizza. I worked with um, a chef in Boston, Todd English, who originally at Figs, and I just fell in love with pizza. And I started, I would actually had all of his recipes after I had left that world, and I would cook pizzas at home on a pizza stone. I would break several of them, <laughs> um, of my stones in my career, but and my pizzas were pretty good. But I also thought that you really to make, to hone in and to dial in that recipe, I needed a wood-fired oven at home. Uh, little did I know, the answer was kind of sitting in front of me. <laughs> that aha moment changed Lagston's life. And while Boston isn't known for its pizza, having gone to college there, I know, Though there are some classics like Centarpios, Galleria Inverto's, and otherwise. I can't stress this enough. The steel worker from Stoughton revolutionized how we made pizzas at home. I knew Nathan probably because of Microsoft. I'd probably read his name at some point. I was sitting at the um, office one afternoon. It was actually February of 2011. And reading the Wall Street Journal after work. just kind of, And I was reading about the launch of his Modernist Cuisine book. The five-volume series. The original. And I, as a foodie, I was fascinated by this. I was like, wow, what an incredible book. And so reading the article, they started asking him questions. And I remember the third question was how to create like a, a Neapolitan style-ish pizza in a home environment. And so my eyeballs literally blew out of my, my brain. I was like, yeah, how do you do it? How does the expert, the science expert say to do this? And he said to literally use a piece of steel for your shelf. And it, it was like almost like someone took a baseball bat to my head. I, it spent you know chills up my spine. And so I ran out to my plant and grabbed some steel and I brought it home that weekend. And I, it was a piece, a component that we used for caterpillar parts. It was like three eighths thickness, maybe 12 inches long by like nine inches. And I, my wife was like, what are you doing with that steel? And I said, I'm going to try to make a pizza on it this weekend. And she said, I'm not going to eat it. <laughs> you can imagine this piece of steel was kind of rusted up. But in any case, I did. And if anybody makes pizza at home, you know, we struggle with a crispy crust. It will bring your level up a notch, whether you're being a beginner or an expert. And because it's just because it's giving you even heat in a home oven. And I, I mean, I recommend people put two on each shelf of their ovens because it's giving you more hot spots. And if you've worked at wood-fired ovens, you would understand that term. I'll typically start on my top shelf of my oven, and then I will move it down to the bottom shelf to kind of really crisp it up. And now I can launch a new one on the top shelf. And I think the steel has evened out the, the heat in home ovens, and it just made it. like It's a, it's a game changer. 
just makes people um, really enjoy making pizza at home because the quality is, if you long ferment your dough, you know this too. If you long ferment for two or three days, you can cook a pizza in like four or five minutes in a home oven. It's going to rival that of the best pizzerias in the country. Say you don't want to leave a steel in your oven all the time, or maybe you're just not into Neapolitan New York style pizza. For everyone else, there's pan pizzas. Robert Molesky started Millie's in the Pan in honor of Burden D. Katz, a pizza maker and owner of Burt's Place in Borden Grove, Illinois. Having his pizza was a life-altering experience. But what is it all about? The pizza or the pan? I was originally a waiter. I've been I was a waiter for about 16 years and I got furloughed on March 17th. Uh, we were told that the restaurant was going to be closing. And I did have plans. I was uh, testing pizzas and making them at home in hopes that I would eventually open up my own pizza place. But after I realized after a couple of months that we weren't going to be going back to work, I decided to go for it and open up my own pizzeria. I originally tried to open a brick and mortar and I tried to get a loan from a bank, which proved to be pretty much impossible because I didn't have any experience or any numbers to back up. The loan I was trying to get, so I looked into ghost kitchens, and I saw that was a fairly easy way to get started. So I started one. I found a kitchen in Logan Square, which is a part of the city, and signed up with them. And I've been doing that for a year or so, about 14 months now. I grew up in a suburb of Chicago, and um, I spent a summer basically traveling the world and trying different pizzerias around the world, and also here in Chicago locally, and I stumbled across Burt's Place, which uh, was a pizza that I never had tried ever in my life, and I fell in love with it, and I was pretty determined to figure out how to make that pizza, so I pretty much dedicated myself to, to learning that craft and that specific style of pizza, and that's the pizza I make at Millie's Pizza in the Pan. Bert Katz was a he's a legendary pizza maker in Chicago. He's responsible for opening up Pequods, which he later left, and he opened up Bert's place. Anthony Bourdain said that was the only deep dish pizza that he ever liked. So he kind of blew up from there, and he just grew his legend grew from there. He's no longer with us, unfortunately. He passed away, but his pizzerias are still going strong, and Pequod's is one of the most famous pizzerias in Chicago, and he started that place. But what makes Burt's Pizzas so singular? That made Molesky want to emulate them. Burt's isn't really a deep dish. It's more like a pan pizza. It's an oval pizza, and the dough is um, it's pretty dense. It's not airy or anything, but the, the main differential is uh, the Frico crust on the outside has a nice caramelization and, you know, he loads it up with toppings and the sauce is heavily seasoned. It's really, really good. And I did a lot of research on this when I was trying to figure out which pants to buy on the PMQ website. I, there's, there's discussion boards and a lot of people were talking about Lloyd's pans. So I went on their website and I decided to order one just to try it out. And I ordered one with the PSTK nonstick coating. And I really liked the way that it performed. So that's the, that's the pan that I use at Millie's Pizza in the pan. Well, I make about five different pizzas. And then I also have one where you can add whatever toppings you want. But I just try to use the freshest ingredients possible. My 
probably my most popular one is uh, pepperoni pizza. I use jalapenos that are pickled. And then I top it with fresh mozzarella. I also have one called the clickbait where it's jalapenos. There's mushrooms. There's sweet red peppers. There's pepidus. So that's my vegetarian version. And I have other ones as well. A lot of people do the customization with the you do you, the uh, add your own toppings. It's superficial to think that pan pizzas are all about the topping. They're not. So much of it becomes about the dough, but even more so how the dough rises and reacts in the pan. When I make my pizza, I let the dough rise for a few hours. I try to get it to rise, uh, rise about halfway up the pan. That's what I always shoot for. Sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't, depending on the weather and the conditions in the kitchen. In the colder months, it's a lot more challenging to get the dough to rise as opposed to the warmer months when it's fairly quick. So usually it can take almost three hours in in this kind of weather to get about halfway up the pan. I don't pre-bake or anything, and then I add the cheese around the edge. The cheese goes all the way up the sides of the pans, and then when I bake it, I first initially bake it with just sauce on there. And then after about five minutes, once the, the I feel the dough has been cooked and it's kind of setting, I will pull the pizza out of the oven and then I will add the toppings. And then I'll bake it for about 19 minutes. And then when I pull it out with the spatula, I remove it from the pan. And it's so I try to shoot for the dough on the bottom, a nice visual on that, probably about an inch, an inch and a half high. And then I'll see a the black ring of Frico crust. That's usually what I shoot for. I use a lot more sauce than most pizzerias as well. There's a lot of pizza in each pan, as illustrated by their bake time. Aside from the 20 to 24 ounces of sauce per pie, a lot goes in each pizza, which is only limited by the number of pans Molesky has. I use a uh, Vulcan convection oven, which isn't really normal for pizza, but that's kind of all I had as an option when I were started working at the ghost kitchen. So I just kind of went with that and tried to learn the best I could on that oven. And it's turned out to work really well. So I'll normally just cook six pizzas. I can probably do eight at a time, but I try not to overcrowd the oven because I feel like it affects the bacon. I don't want to take the chance of serving a product that's less than subpar. Right now I have about 25 pans. Uh, so I put all I put the dough in the, the pans in the beginning of my shift. That's the first thing I do when I go into the kitchen. So I put dough in every single one of those pans for 25 minutes. I mean, all 25 pans. I'm hoping, and it should be in the very near future, to start a brick and mortar, which I've already signed a lease for a location. So in the goal of expanding and hopefully producing more pizzas. So yes, I will be buying more pans. Right now I have a 10, it's 10.25 inches and then it's two inches deep. And then the other size I have is a 14.25 inch and then two inches deep. His pans are his superpower, but so is his not so secret nonstick spray. It's called uh, Banton spray. I will use that on the Frico edge of the pan and then I'll rub that in. And then on the rest of the pan, I will use vegetable shortening. So when the bake is over, the pan comes out almost perfectly clean. Like if you've ever made lasagna and you, you see the what looks like the burnt ends on the side of the pan, that's kind of what it tastes like. It's like a salty, 
don't know, it's deliciousness. Like it's hard to explain. It doesn't taste burnt at all. It looks burnt, but it doesn't taste burnt at all. Yeah, that's the best way I can describe with with uh, the caramelized cheese on the lasagna. That crunchy caramelized cheese. That's what the whole crust is like. Francisco has a few more pieces of equipment that he thinks all peacemakers should have. And listen to him about a scale, because he won't take no for an answer. He's also got a trick or two to try, if say, you don't have a proper peel to launch your pie into the oven. And of course, he has thoughts about how to cut a slice. People get a scale. I mean, that's the first step into the realm of success in the kitchen is buying a scale. And it doesn't cost that much money. I don't I don't understand what the hang up is with you know, just using volume. You need a thermometer for pizza to make sure that your dough is coming off the mixer at the right temperature and it's not too hot, not too cold. You need to make sure that your sauce has reached room temperature before you put it on top of your pizza dough because that's just going to work a lot better for for baking your pizza. It's going to bake a lot faster as opposed to putting like cold sauce on top of it. So a thermometer and a scale are are pretty important. And a baking steel. This is for home, right? And we're talking about home. So those three things I would say are important. So I would say your first pizzas, assemble them on the back of a sheet pan, on you know, lined with parchment paper, spread your dough out on top of that, put your sauce and your cheese on and just slide it on top, the parchment paper on top of your baking steel. What I would suggest is halfway through your bake, you can actually rotate your pizza very carefully. You can actually take the parchment paper out and you know the pizza goes right back in. You rotate it 180 degrees, you're gonna get an even bake, you're gonna get a really nice crispy bottom. I say remove the parchment paper because sometimes it could burn. You know, you can buy a pizza wheel if you really feel like it, but a regular knife, even scissors. I feel like scissors cut a pizza better than anything else. Um, it may take a little bit longer, but it's a cleaner cut. It doesn't smush the crust, which a lot of us like to see inside the crust and take a look inside. Whereas if you use a pizza wheel or a knife, you're basically crushing it. Uh, where a pair of scissors is much more gentle and delicate on the crust so we can look inside and, you know, get a nice clean cut. It's these tools that round out a pizza pie, but sometimes you can't look past the oven. In Big Sky Country, Donnie Spear makes pizza in a truck down by the river. That is, fire truck. As a senior in high school, he went to Italy for a month, starting in Rome and north to Florence. That's where he got his first taste of wood fire pizza. Oh, it's just incredible. The, the crust was so thin that you could almost see through it. It was still crispy, but you could fold it up and eat it like, you know, like a folded up pizza pizza. You know, you could fold the whole pizza in half and eat it like that. And that's how most people would eat it. It was more viewed as like a snack served on the the street sides of different various cafes and various plazas. And I just I, I could see I just had this real visceral connection to to the whole experience. I live in a very rural area in Montana, a little town called Wise River. And the reason why we named the the business the Big Hole Pizza Company is because the river that flows through our little valley is called the Big Hole River. And so we just kind of thought that that was appropriate. So where is your restaurant located? What's the building like? It's not a building. It's a old vintage fire truck that I converted into a mobile wood-fired pizza oven setup. So what it was was a, a 78 Ford that um, had a big water tank in the back of it, a thousand gallon water tank. 
I removed the water tank and that's where I built the kitchen. And then where the pump to the fire truck was is where I took that pump out and that's where I placed the wood burning pizza oven. How did you end up with a fire truck? It was by God's great grace. I built the pizza oven the winter before, and that's when I started experimenting with my dough recipes and recipes in general, pasta, uh, the the sauce recipes and stuff. So I had a whole winter to try to figure out what I was going to put it on. I know I wanted to do something mobile because there are so many uh, outdoor festivals here in Montana that I knew that I was going to have to be driving, being in such a remote location, driving to where the action was. So I started researching various options such as large trailers. The oven weighs about 5,000 pounds, so it had to be something substantial to carry that load. And I one day was driving by our volunteer fire department and we have an old vintage fire truck that has been rotting outside of the fire station for decades. And I just had an aha moment and I thought, wow, wouldn't that be cool? Wouldn't, Wouldn't that be a drawer? I really wanted to focus on uh, going to rodeos as one of our main venues, and it just felt like an all-American option to me. So is this your first career, second career? What led you to pizza, your (laughs) travels, your profession? This is my second or third career. Um, I'm 44 years old. I had a medium to large-scale landscaping business for about 20 years, and we did tremendous masonry projects, outdoor fireplaces, outdoor pizza ovens, um, you know, vanishing edge swimming pools. So I have a lot of masonry background in my life. Um, Sadly, I went through a divorce and I needed something that was going to enable me to be able to provide for my daughter, but not with such a stringent work schedule. So with this masonry background, what did you do differently to build the oven within this fire truck that maybe uh, an oven builder wouldn't have done? Well, the frame had to be extremely substantial, the metal frame, because, you know, as you could imagine, any flex in the oven would create cracks. So I just, uh, I've always been a firm believer when it comes to concrete in over engineering projects by adding extra metal and extra concrete. So I just doubled up everything that um, that one would normally do. And so there's large I-beams that support a quarter-inch metal tray. And then there's a series of uh, insulation fire bricks um, that, that go between that and the actual brick oven part of it. That's 36,000 pounds of fire engine. The oven was 5,000 pounds itself. It often sits by a fishing hole. Picture this, a fire truck that's meant to put out fires with water sits by the water, making fires for cooking well-hydrated dough. A true fish story. So tell me what George Grant Fishing Access in Dewey is like. Oh, what a blessing that was as well. So we we were a very small, tight-knit group community. And when I originally set out on this mission... I thought that I was going to be able to actually park in all of the different fishing accesses. Fly fishing is a very big tourist attraction here for us in the summertime. And as it turns out, all of these different locations are managed by different entities. Like one might be 
the Forest Service, one might be Fish and Game, one might be the Bureau of Land Management. As it turns out, none of them allow anybody to sell from their locations. So that really set me back. And after talking to some of the locals, some of our neighbors, um, people just came out of the woodworks once they heard that. And they said, well, you can park here. You can park there. You can park here. Before I knew it, I had like 15 different locations along our river that I was permitted to park at. And so the George Grant fishing location, I'm actually parked on my neighbor's property and she owns the RV park. And uh, she just, of the kindness of her heart, has allowed me to park right against the fence line. And the person who was in charge of um, that fishing access allowed me to take down a section of the fence so people wouldn't have to climb over a fence. And it just has worked out wonderfully. One of the big things I really wanted to accomplish was being able to serve people from the highway as well as the river. I had this this vision of you know, people floating down the river, fishing all day, and then stopping and getting a pie or a piece and just continuing on their voyage. And, you know, the idea of being able to make that person's experience that much more memorable uh, really appealed to me. I'm a people pleaser and it brings me warmth and joy when, you know, you could look in somebody's eyes as they're taking the first bite And then they just kind of melt. And then the next, sometimes, not always, but often another reaction will be is, this is the best pizza I've ever eaten. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you said the word expedition, and that made me think of, this is an area that Lewis and Clark traveled through, right? Yes, this river, actually, they did travel through, and it's uh, written in in their memoirs. I mean, there's no pizza in their memoirs, though. (laughs) No, no, there's not. So... Who else comes here? Are there people that just stumble upon Big Hole, you know, this fire truck serving pizza and they're just blown away? Or the majority of your customers coming there because they know you and the locations? Well, you know, like anything, this is our second year. It takes a while for the word to get out there. So I'd say, you know, about 30% of our our business is just the random person that sees our fly, our, our signs up and says, well, let's check this out. And they come and then they're kind of hooked. And now we have people that you know travel from from hours away just to come and have pizza and they've utilized the fishing access as a, a place for them to come and have a decompressing moment in their week they will bring their lawn chairs and you know go sit down by the river and have pizza with their wife or their children and that too brings a lot of um, gratification to me but there's a risk to his business model, and that's because of fire. This year, there was a series of wildfires in the valley that turned into one big blaze. We had er- very early on in the season some lightning strikes that created three different fires, which two of them ended up morphing into one large fire. So this season has been um, just an absolute wild roller coaster. And um, once the fires took off, we had a plethora of firefighters coming to our valley from all over the country. And it quickly dawned on me that there was going to be a huge need to service these people. So we um, quickly repositioned our, our setup over to the volunteer fire station. We remained there for almost a month where we were able to feed uh, a tremendous amount of firefighters. 
quite a few of our local neighbors and um, homeowners and whatnot pooled together and um, donated money to provide pizza for these people. And so it was uh, truly a, an amazing, another amazing blessing to be able to serve in that facility. You see the poetic nature in this, right? Bring the fire truck back to the fire station to make yeah. fire pizzas. Yeah, it was, it was, it, yeah, it still gives me goosebumps. From a spark to a flame. That burning desire to make pizza exists in all of us. I know it does. And if you think it doesn't and need someone to light a fire underneath you, I know a few pizza people that can help. Thank you to our sponsor, Uni, guests, Richard Miskovich, Bill Stoeckler, Andy Tyser, Michael Hudman, Dr. Daniel Wing, Jason Lyon, Clay Westbrook, Kiko Denzer, Miriam Westkind, Andres Lagston, Robert Molesky, and Donnie Spear. Music by Kara Cleveland Sings, Jack Inslee, our engineer, and of course, Modernist Cuisine. For our next episode, U.S. Regional Styles, why does Modernist Cuisine think Portland, Oregon is the per capita king of pizza in the United States? We look at the origins of California-style pizza, from Chez Panisse to Wolfgang Puck, and even California Pizza Kitchen. How an ex-Navy cook is turning out high-cuisine concept pies in Los Angeles. How you can drive up and down a 250-mile stretch of the Great River Road along the Mississippi River to visit Wisconsin pizza farms. Why Chicago's deep dish tradition may have started with a biscuit recipe, and why thin crust tavern bar pies may be more authentically Chicagoan. Why the best pizza in the tri-state area might be in New Jersey. Oh, and how Mystic, Connecticut, a seaport town that came to fame in the late 1980s for a pizza-themed movie, now has a new mommy-packed slice of its own. Today's episode is brought to you by Uni. There's nothing easier than ordering a pizza for delivery. It's the waiting around that's hard. But with the new Unikaru 16, making your own pizza is even faster than delivery. It takes only 15 minutes to fire up your oven to proper temp, and then in 60 seconds, your pie is done. 16 minutes, oven door to table. Even the bike delivery guy from a few blocks over can't have a piping hot pizza to your door that quick. Sometimes I want a wood smoked margarita, and other times I'm looking for a New York slice. With the Karu 16's multi-fuel option, you not only get that instant gratification of a great Neapolitan pie, but you can choose how you want to cook it too, with wood, charcoal, or gas. Now, get off your apps, close your computer, and get out your uni. It's time for pizza. Learn more at uni.com backslash modernistpodcast. That's O-O-N-I dot com backslash modernistpodcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.